podcast listeners. It is December 16th, 2010, and this is the business of tech. My name is Kyle Wegner, and I am joined this week and every week, as you all know, by Jarrell Ganey. What's going on, Jarrell? I'm good, man. How about yourself? I am doing just fine. <laughs> um, the, the reason that Jarrell and I are laughing is because we actually started the show maybe five or ten minutes ago, and I had not hit record yet. So instead of you know cutting it off at the beginning uh, like I, like we had a couple weeks ago, we decided to start over. So, so that impromptu conversation we normally have before we start talking about the items. Yeah, we already had that, so it's not so impromptu. I just, you know, let's do a recap for him. We talked about our holidays. We talked about Jarrell. What's that? What's the documentary you're going to be watching over the holidays? It's, it's the World at War. The World at War, which is a, a documentary that's in black and white since it's from 1917. No, um, 1970 something. 1973, I believe. Okay. Anyway, it's it's old and it's really long, and he's going to spend quite a long time watching it. And man, that introduction would have been way better if we got it the first time. But that's right. Say love you. Say love you. Let bygones be bygones. Um, you know what? Let's just get into it. You know, we we only got into our first story here a, a tiny bit, so I think we can go over it again. And our first story is that. Time Magazine has named Mark Zuckerberg the Person of the Year, which is – it's really interesting. There's a lot of competition for that space. It's a lot – you know, like you know, people voting on the internet for it and stuff. Um, but it, it seems like a good year for Mark Zuckerberg. Now, you know, Facebook hit 500 million users. Um, which is which is definitely significant. I mean, that's that's a huge, massive number, and that's you know in in a project that he started. But also, he had this movie come out about him, and he seemed to respond to that probably both privately and publicly very well. And so, you know, from what I can tell, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking that that you know made him the person of the year. Um, Drew, what are your thoughts on it? I agree with those uh, those two points, and. Um... I think I added the uh, the pervasiveness of um, Facebook. You know, basically, if you log on to the internet, um, there's no way that you can um, avoid having some kind of exposure or interaction with um, Facebook, whether it be using uh, Facebook um, Facebook login on um, on partner sites or whether it be uh, um, being exposed to pictures. You you basically have some kind of exposure to Facebook. Is number one. Number two is um, his uh, his commitment to donate. Half of his uh, half of his value to uh, to uh, to a charity uh, when he does, I think that is a uh, or when he passes, I think that is a significant um, factor that pushed him to the top. Yeah, you know yeah. that's a that's a really good point. And to give a little bit of background on this, um, this this half of your wealth being donated thing is actually something I believe that Bill Gates started, or at least he's one of the more visible members of this kind of elite group of super wealthy people that have done it. And I think the list is only like 15 or 16 people long. So there's not a whole lot of people that have committed to donating half of their wealth you know, in their lifetime or by the end of their life. Um, but Mark Zuckerberg is one of those people, and he's – I mean, he's only 26 years old, and he's you know ridiculously wealthy. But he is mature enough to be able to say, "I'm I'm going to donate these things." You know, what's the difference between a billion dollars and half and and half a billion dollars? You know, in your lifetime that you're going to pass on to your to your 
family or, or whatever. I mean, it's not that big of a difference, and you can help so many people with that much money. Yeah, and another thing that I thought of is, um, and this is probably to a lesser extent, but still very much noticed by uh, by the mainstream media, is how much progress he's made in being able to uh, to communicate um, on the stage. You know, if you look back a year ago, uh, Zuckerberg had a, a very difficult time talking about Facebook, um, whereas now, you know, he's able to he's able to more fluently, uh, more effectively communicate his ideas. He, you know, he's, he's, he's able to speak to, to crowds of people better. And that's been something that has been very much noticed um, in the media. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, he absolutely has shown immense growth in his public persona in, in the last year and, and really since the movie the came out. Yeah, I think the Facebook movie forced him to take – it was probably – probably hire some really, really professional media training people to get him up to speed. Because until then, I think he'd kind of been winging it. And, you know, granted, like we said, he's 26 years old, and he gets in front of these crowds that, you know, seasoned CEOs only get in front of. So some nerves are understandable, but I think he kind of started taking it seriously and and had to because of that movie that came out. Yeah, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of um, psychoanalysis here. You know, so who knows how... how how on I am when I say this, but Zuckerberg, Mark, Mark seems like the type of individual where if he sees a challenge, whether that challenge be with how people socially communicate, whether that challenge be with how he communicates, he takes that challenge head on and he finds out, you know, he, he identifies ways to improve, um, to improve himself or improve, improve the ability to socially communicate. Where I'm going with that is he saw how he was portrayed in the movie. And he, he's, it was, it was an unflattering portrayal. And I think what he has done is he saw that he recognized or he admitted that it was an issue and he set upon himself, uh, you know, he, he set himself a goal of improving it. And, and he was, you know, I think he's been successful at doing so. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I think that you're right in that he, he often has a singular focus in what he wants to accomplish and he accomplishes it. And and that is definitely shown in his in his stage presence because it was a matter of weeks in between um, what do they call it like sweat gate or, yep. or something like that um, where he he had essentially a nervous breakdown on stage and or, or an anxiety attack or something like that and a couple of weeks later he was up in front of a, a similarly pressing crowd and got by with flying colors yep. so. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that all attributes to to him being the the person of the year. And and I was thinking about it because you know when we were first talking about 500 million users it being pervasive, I was like, well, why wouldn't then Facebook be the person of the year? Because they do silly things like that where they they make it a, a not a person but some some other sort of pervasive entity. Um, but you know because I think like WikiLeaks was going to be one of them or something like that. But anyway, um, you know these other features of Mark Zuckerberg and his his contribution to Facebook, which has been significant, obviously, um, I think do justify why he was you know the person of the year. Do you think that uh, do you have anybody else in mind that you think also could have or should have been nominated or possibly chosen for this. Well, I know there's been a lot of conversation around uh, Julian Assange. Yep. Um, I, I don't agree that he should have been person of the year, but I can see why you know why people would make that argument. Um, WikiLeaks was something that has recently been in the media um, a lot, you know, and and they and they have had a uh, they have had an impact on what people see the internet 
on the the uh, on on how people see that the internet might might affect change, societal change. Um, now you have uh, now you have other sites that are you know they're committed to the same thing that WikiLeaks is uh, committed to. I think one of them is called Open Leaks or yes. Open, Open Wiki or something like that. Yeah, it, I th- I believe it's Open Leaks, and it's actually founded and started by a couple of guys that were within the WikiLeaks program. You know, they yep. were working with Julian Assange, but um, were were not happy with the U.S. focus or yep. the perceived U.S. focus of WikiLeaks, and so they went out and created. I believe a more timely version and also a more uh, international focused version. Yeah. yeah, you know, so you can, you know, you know, I, I can understand why people will make the argument that you know that maybe he deserves some light, but uh, it's hard to dispute, you know, the 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 impact that uh, Mark Zuckerberg and um, and Facebook have had on uh, on the internet. So um, yeah. I, I think he's a rightful. I think he's a rightful recipient. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I think so too. So one change that Mark Zuckerberg has probably had at least part of an impact on was a, was a fairly small change on Facebook that came out this last week. But it's one that have really got people's feathered, feathers ruffled, and that is that – and I actually thought this was something that's been around for a while, but I guess not. But um, Facebook Photos now has uh, facial recognition, as in it, it can tell when there's a face in a photo – and once you tag that photo, it'll look for that similar face within that album or I guess even within a social graph and say, is this also the same person and have you tag them across there. Now, there were a lot of people that decided that that was like a huge privacy issue and that this was like crossing the boundaries for Facebook. And I, I'm not sure I agree Um Drill, do you do you have an opinion on that or, or understand why people are saying those things? I, I don't think it's crossing any what what kind of boundaries? Like privacy boundaries? Yeah, people are people are assuming that now Facebook knows what my face looks like, whereas before they only knew that I was tagged in a photo that was made up of bits. Yeah. Well, I mean, they've introduced technology, you know, in the same way that uh, the Windows Live Photo Gallery on your desktop has introduced technology. And I'm under the impression that the um, Apple Suite, and I can't remember the name of the uh, Apple. Probably iPhoto. iPhoto. Yeah. I think iPhoto has uh, iPhoto has facial recognition uh, technology as well. And they're just basically bringing it to the web. I, I see it as being a very nice feature. Um, you don't have to utilize it. You know, when you upload photos, it will, in fact, recognize the other faces, and it will ask you to confirm that this is who they, you know, who who it thinks it is, and it, it is up to the user whether or not they tag that, you know, tag that person in the photo. I think it's a great feature. I mean, it definitely uh, it definitely streamlines the um the the photo upload process. Right, and tagging is actually a huge pain. It's not something that I think anybody enjoys as far as as part of the photo uploading process. So anything to automate that sounds like a good thing to me but what i'm not really understanding with i mean it's a two-part thing i guess idea that i'm not understanding one is that like you said um windows live or live suite or something like that has this sort of functionality so does osx um so macs have this functionality i don't understand why facebook having it is any worse so that's that's the first point and the second point is they're not they're not doing anything other than using computer learning to associate what different shapes and colors look like and associating them with text and a profile. I, it's just – I don't understand what they could do with this that 
impacts your privacy at all. I mean, I, I don't understand how it's different than just looking at photos that were tagged of you all along. Like, what is the difference? What can happen here that you wouldn't want to have happen otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the, uh, I, I guess the, uh, the, uh, you know, the people who are opposing this are, are basically saying, you know, Facebook has has automated um, the recognition of um, users of Facebook. And um, I feel like I feel like that's what Facebook is supposed to do. Right. Um, you know, if Facebook wants to continue its its utilization, you know, and, and how it engages its users, it has to make it has to make features such as uploading photos more intuitive. It has to make, you know, it has to make tagging people, which people like to do. But like you said, it, it is a pain. You know, it's, it's a pain to do it. Um, it's, it's made it, you know, a more seamless process. And that's a good thing. I, I, I don't see I mean, I'm in total agreement with you. I don't see any. I don't see the negativity involved with that. Right. And and again, you know, it's technology. It's it's not it's it's the algorithm. You know, it's taking the, the it's taking the shape of your face, the features of your face, and um and comparing it to uh you know to the user pro to the users of Facebook. And if it recognizes someone, it, it lets you know. And again, it's an opt in feature. You know, users don't have to do it. They can choose to do it if they like. Right. It's, I don't I, I'm I'm in total agreement. I don't I don't see anything wrong with it. Okay, so another Facebook update this week. Well, it's actually more a Bing update that includes Facebook, but something that I could see people not liking for privacy reasons, or at least they don't know that their information is being shared in this way, is that you know a couple months ago at this point, Bing uh, started including social results pulled from Facebook when you were doing searches. So it had kind of like a call-out box that said these are results from Facebook that, that we think that you might – be looking for you know we're pulling information from your social graph and it was really really tight integration between Bing and Facebook so now they're taking that one step further and instead of in a separate box they're actually showing in the search results if any of your friends have liked that web page before and so it's essentially you know in your search results page on Bing if you search for something like Apple and you know 30 of your friends have liked apple.com it's going to show that that stat right there next to the search listing. So, uh, you know, this is this is functionality that, that I I believe is probably a little bit beyond what the other search engines can perform because of Bing's relationship with Facebook. So, Jarrell, do you think that this is something that is going to differentiate Bing even further than you know they have been before? I mean, yeah, it totally will differenti differentiate being, but um, you know, as it relates to the privacy issues, I, I don't see the, <laughs> I don't see the issue there either. I mean, basically, what they're doing is, if you're searching on a term that relates to something that someone has liked, um, they are exposing that in their search results. Now, if you have liked it, it's exposed in your Facebook profile to your friends, um, and it only it only impacts your search results in being if one of your friends have um, you know if one of your friends have liked something. So it's only taking a message that you have a message indicated that you have already inputted into Facebook and exposing it in your search results. And then again, the user can either choose to participate in this or not to participate in it. So I, I don't, I don't see the privacy issue. Well, the the one portion of the privacy that I can kind of understand, and actually. There isn't a privacy issue in that people aren't complaining about this, but something that I've always thought is kind of an issue with this sort of thing is that when I like something on the web, you know, hit that like button, I expect, you know, it to show up in people's news feeds on Facebook or be on my profile. 
Um, what I don't know or I don't expect is that that same data is going to be shared everywhere. Now, granted, it's only with my Facebook friends, but at the same time, I didn't realize that when they were searching on, you know, keyword X, Y, or Z, and this result comes up, that, you know, I'm going to be now part of Bing. It's not a, it's not a huge worry of mine, but there, there are certain places where, where data is going to pop up, and I'm going to go, oh, you know, I didn't realize that I was going to be, you know, highlighted in other places other than on Facebook.com. Um, do you do you normally uh, is that is that a feature that you use liking search liking um, pages or or liking sites? Occasionally, I did it more when it was new, just to kind of use the feature, but at the, rarely. Okay, um, you you are aware that if you have liked the site or liked the page, that site and or page can expose that information when a user visits that page and or site. Yeah, and yeah, because of that widget that's on there. Yeah. All right. So what's happening in Bing is not the same, is the same thing that's happening across the entire web. Right. 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 And that's why that's why the you know they are you know more than more than just allowed to do it. I mean, like it, it's going to become an expected feature of the web, but at this point, it's just a a new implementation of something that you know say my mom might not know that when she likes something it's going to show up in people's search results that that's all i'm saying is that i don't know if the expectation of it is there but it's already you know it's already exposed across the web if you like something it's it's already exposed across the web i guess i guess now since facebook is becoming the web that's probably true yeah i mean and and i agree with you know with, with a word that you use it's just a new implementation of it it's a different implementation of it but the the end result's the same which is that an indicator, a signal that you um, that you engaged in, which was definitely exposed in Facebook and exposed on that site and or URL, has now been exposed in search results. Um, it, it's the same thing. It's just a different implementation. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'll, I'll agree with that. I, I don't think there's a huge thing. I, I, I more wanted to uh, highlight the upgrade of Bing with this data than the privacy issues. Yeah. Um, but but it is something that that you know it, I just find it a little funny that facial recognition is getting all of this coverage, whereas you know Facebook data being ported even further or even deeper into other websites is not. Now now going back to the value it adds to being you know I, I think that's significant. You know if you're that may be something you know for the more uh, for the more advanced advanced web user you know I think the average user is probably not gonna. They either won't notice it or they won't know that it's a feature that's unique to Bing. Um, but for the advanced web user, if they're, they, they may actually choose to use Bing because they are interested in whether or not their social, uh, their social circle has, um, has commented on whatever they're searching for. <clears throat> yeah, so how long do you think it'll be before Facebook likes or Facebook data like this is going to actually be integrated into the ranking algorithm as opposed to just something that's layered on top of as a visual feature. Well, according to uh, I think according to Search Engine Land, they're already using those uh, you know, those signals. As well, a- what they're using are links that are dropped on Facebook and Twitter, right. and, and so they're in a, traditionally when we think about social links, they are they they have the no follow tag on them, and so they are completely discounted from the web. And and Google has recently come out and well actually not just Google all of the search engines have come out and said eh, that's not quite true there are there are sites like Facebook and Twitter that even though they use the no follow tag we're still following some of those links from the most influential people yeah I, I think your question was how would it impact ranking or do I expect for it to impact ranking yes 
And according to search engine land, uh, Facebook activity is influ- influencing ranking on being and leading to uh, personalized search results. So it's it's something that they are you know that they're currently doing. Um, they're not saying to what extent is is uh, you know is customizing your search results, but they are saying that it's influencing ranking. Hmm. Well, there you have it. I guess it's already happening. Yep. <clears throat> I didn't realize that they could leverage the data, the data that deeply, but I can't say that's a bad thing. You know, yep. I think that I think that social integration is kind of the next step into the algorithm, so it makes sense. Yeah, and what I thought you were going to ask is, do I think that Facebook would ever um, give this data to uh, to Google? Hell no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that <laughs> that that was my uh, that was my response. I, I don't think Google is going to get this data anytime soon, at least not until it becomes a commodity, and right. Facebook can you know can can somehow uh, monetize giving this data to uh, to Google because right now you know Facebook and Google are are at each other's uh, neck, and I can't see them giving Google any competitive advantage in the um, in the search space. Right, and you know, so Google at this point can use all of the data that anybody else can use from the open graph, which seems pretty significant. But I just don't know how deeply that can be integrated. It's something I haven't, you know, kind of, you know, researched myself to see what you can do with that open graph data. But anyway, you want to take us through uh, some some pretty sad news, I guess, from Yahoo that came out either today or yesterday. Yeah, I actually, <clears throat> I think that I started seeing um, stories surface on this today, and that is Yahoo is um, shutting down various services. Uh, they're merging some services and they're turning other services, what I believe to be currently standalone services, into uh, features in Yahoo. The services that they're shutting down are uh, delicious, which is something that I I use a lot. And it's huge. That's pro- <clears throat> I mean that is huge. It is huge. You know, and I think that's a property that Yahoo, along with um, uh, uh, Flickr, I think that's a service that you know they never really, they never really leveraged the data that's available in that service. They never integrated that data into their into their search results, into their search algorithm. They never inter- integrated it into their their not in a significant way into their social product. They just didn't take advantage of. The, uh, they're not taking advantage of the data that they have. I think that's a Yahoo issue. Yeah, that's a Yahoo problem. Yeah, it's a huge missed opportunity <clears throat> for them. Definitely. Uh, so along with Delicious, they're uh, they're shutting down my blog log, which uh, I kind of understand that um, Yahoo Buzz, which is basically correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is a dig is a dig clone. Yep, yep. Um, they're shutting down, uh, shutting down Alta Vista and all the web, which I actually didn't know were still live. Right, no loss there. <laughs> and Yahoo Bookmarks, which I'm really not sure what that that service does, and Yahoo Picks, which I'm also not really familiar with that. Um, but you know the the point remains that they're shutting down you know quite a number of services for in in hopes of allowing for them to focus whatever this may be on the services and products that they uh, that they feel are are core products and services. Yeah, and this is so surprising to me, especially the the delicious and even my blog log side of things. I mean, Yahoo is a content company now that's what they do that's all they have they don't do anything other than aggregate create and distribute content and something like delicious was something that that they could use really really well to inform themselves about what kind of content was attractive at what time to different sets of users so the data that went along with delicious i thought was 
highly valuable. Apparently, it must not. I mean, but Delicious is still one of the major bookmarking social bookmarking sites. It's not like Delicious has been on a huge downturn lately. It's still, you know, it's still there with Reddit and even, I mean, even Dig at this point. It's just, I, I, I'm pretty shocked by the whole thing with Delicious. The rest of them, you know, so, so long, I guess. But Delicious is the one that's really thrown me off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess in their in their search to uh, to determine, you know, what Yahoo was all about, they decided that Yahoo is not about data mining. <laughs> Yahoo is about content. You know, Yahoo is about presenting content. I feel like they should have done more and should continue to do more data mining, uh, but apparently, you know, they don't fig- that doesn't figure into their their core purpose. Well, I mean, how how expensive could it have been to? run delicious you know like that's a good question i mean you would think that at this point the site I mean, the site almost runs itself i mean you would think so at right. this point. unless it's unless it's overrun with spam but even then i would just let it get overrun with spam if that's a problem you know what i mean like just start letting it go and it'll you know maybe eventually die off but this is like they pulled the plug before you know while it was still a fairly supported service by at least its user base yeah. Now, and and re- listeners, you know, we're saying they pulled the plug. That doesn't mean you can't go to Delicious tonight and still book more content. Um, you know, but we're expecting them to release a date that you know the service will be shutting down in the near future. At which point, you're going to have to export if you want to still have access to those bookmarks. You're going to have to export them from uh, from Delicious. So, yeah, I don't want to confuse people. You know, have people think that the the service is gone now. It's not gone now, but it will go. Right, but you better believe the traffic tomorrow is going to be far lower than it has been in okay. years and years. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, the the community is gone at this point because they know it's going to die. They're they're all going to go elsewhere. So I guess the the big winners here are Reddit and Dig. Yeah, I I, I don't know what they're I don't know what they're thinking here. I mean, it's I mean the long term strategy is to be a content company. Yeah, I, I understand. I just wish they would have utilized the properties and services that services that they have. To, to add value, you know, to uh, to to their business, and right. they're not doing it, and they've decided that it's not something they want to do. Yeah, you know, looking at all of these different services that are being shut down, they they're all pretty much like self-run or community-run at the very least. You know, my blog log, I mean, blogs, Yahoo Buzz, which was sharing. Yahoo Bookmarks, which was bookmarks. I don't even know what Yahoo Picks was, but take the other ones and. You've got a lot of services that I can't imagine are difficult to maintain or expensive to maintain. Yeah, and, and you have the, you know you have the wonder, the staff for those for those properties, you know the the cost of keeping that staff. I can't imagine there being significant savings in getting rid of that you know that that staff. Right. I, I mean, because I can't imagine that they have huge teams of staff um, keeping keeping these services up. I I, I don't see the. Uh, I don't see the financial value, right. and I definitely don't see the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the strategic value in it. But you know, we're we're not sitting at the board table, so. Well, that's know. true, but at the same time, I think that the worry that this type of a move instills in people like you and me, and probably every other person that follows the tech industry, is going to hurt them more than those than keep upkeeping those salaries and just keeping some of these services alive. Like they could have, they could have shut down Alta Vista, all the web, Yahoo picks. Yahoo Buzz, like most of these, and all of us would have gone, oh, whatever. You know, they just you know, they got rid of some of the really, really, you know, dying products that are out there. Um, but you know, putting Delicious in my blog log 
on there, I, you know, they should have saved that for later, I think. Yeah. What can I you mean, do? So you have to look at the type of users who use those. I, I, I'm trying to play devil's advocate. Yeah. Totally yeah. Cheap, you know, that, you know, why would they get rid of these services? But, you know, taking the, uh, the opposing view. So, Let's see if we can profile the type of users who uh, probably use delicious in my blog log. These are, for the most part, tech-savvy people. Uh, probably probably skew uh, towards the uh, people who are involved with the tech industry. People who have a reason for, uh, for having up-to-date information on what, on what blogs and having, having up-to-date information on what, on what blogs are saying. And I, I, I feel like if they decide that their audience is, they decide that, they, that they're focusing on a general audience, the type of audience who's, who's more so focused on consume, consuming content than necessarily creating content. And but I'm using creating content loosely here, you know, because I realize that creating my blog live profile is not really creating content. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, it, it is a way of staying staying on top of, of whatever blogs you're interested in. And and I feel like they probably felt this audience was too small, it wasn't growing, and it's not going to contribute to uh, to their bottom line. I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, it's delicious, it's delicious monetized in any way. Is there any advertising associated with my with uh with delicious? It's been so long since I've been on there. I really couldn't tell you. I I go there almost every day and I don't recall seeing any ads. It doesn't mean they're not there. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of blind when it comes to them, but I don't recall seeing any. And I don't see how you can significantly monetize uh, my blog log. So, you know, probably what they were looking at is when you look at the uh, the staff overhead compared to the revenue that these properties are generating, um, it's, it's either upside down or insignificant. And because of that, they figured there was no need to continue investment in these properties. Yeah. I mean, y- you can't really say a whole lot against that either. You know, I mean, I think that that's probably a lot of the logic that they used to make this decision. It just, I don't know. I hope there is more to it than that. Yeah. So, so that it's a little bit more understandable. I don't know. We'll see. Well, I guess that you know these Yahoo services shutting down, um, kind of, they, they just create more opportunities for everybody else, right? Yeah. So, so while you know, while Yahoo is shutting down services, it appears that uh, Microsoft is trying to enhance um, services that that some people may think need to be shut down. Um, no, come on. Well, yeah, hey, when you think of the tech industry, the tech industry doesn't go to Hotmail. The tech industry goes to, uh, or when you think of when you think of uh, early adopters or people who are leading uh, web conversations, they don't go to Hotmail. They go to Gmail. Right. And right. Hotmail's way of combating that is is basically, I mean, I, I feel, I, I'm, I'm going to call it a game changer, but I'm going to use that term loosely. Uh, what Hotmail is doing is enabling certain certain partners, and I think there are currently four partners, um, to embed JavaScript in their emails. So what that means is, and let me probably let me give a, a, a overview of the email industry. Typically, when you receive an email, if there's JavaScript in that email, the email client, whether that client be web based or a desktop client, typically disables the JavaScript in that email. It's a way um, that uh, email uh, providers um, is, is is their way of preventing um, spam and preventing um, uh, uh, viruses and attacks and stuff like right, that. Right, viruses from being distributed via email. So it's it's it's, it's, uh, it's disabled. Now, what Hotmail is doing is allowing for certain partners 
to enable JavaScript in the emails, which basically allows for you to almost send web page site functionality via email. So you'll open up an email from, uh, I think Orbitz is a, uh, is a launch partner, and open up an email from Orbitz, and now not only can you click on a link within that email and go to the Orbitz website, you can actually do the same things within that email that you could do on the Orbitz website. So you could almost, I mean, with JavaScript, you really do have almost full website functionality. Like, there's very few things that you can't accomplish with JavaScript now. Full web functionality within your inbox. Yeah, very so, interesting. Uh, what, what they're thinking this is going to do is, you know, is make the uh, make the whole email process a little bit more uh, a little bit more streamlined. You know, you don't have to go to the website now. You can perform the action within the email. So Orbis can send you an email about booking a booking a flight, and you can actually book that flight within your inbox. So I wonder how many people are going to take advantage of this since it's only to Hotmail users. And I'm thinking about this from a email production side of things in that now you will have to create a whole new version just for Hotmail users. It'll be better for those users. And so, you know, maybe you'll see a higher conversion rate, whatever you're trying to accomplish. But, you know, the production that goes into that you know, is probably also significant because you're working with a new type of technology and layering that probably not even on top of, but rebuilding those emails that you would have sent out previously. Do you see this as something that will indicate to the rest of the providers, hey, you should start providing this sort of access to, and then eventually it will become ubiquitous? Or is this going to be one of those things that maybe services that target people, you know, sets of people that are heavy Hotmail users, only they will take advantage of it because there's less waste there? I think you have to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. The first perspective that I'm going to look at it through is the uh, the perspective of the advertiser. Um, I think this is significant for advertisers, and and I I don't I, I'm not sure of, of the additional work that's going to be placed on the advertiser to on um, to format an email for the uh, for the Hotmail inbox. I say that because basically what they can do is embed a web page <laughs> in the um, in in the email. So as opposed to creating, you know, new content or new copy just for Hotmail, which wouldn't be a problem because Hotmail is one of the, you know, one of the largest um, mail providers on the internet. But instead of, you know, they, they may not necessarily have to create a whole new email for uh, for Hotmail. They may be able to just embed a special web page in the Hotmail. That web page is available on the web. It's available within Hotmail. It's definitely going it, to. It should increase the uh, conversion rate because users can convert within their inbox as opposed to having to go to the website. So I see this being, you know, I see this being a feature that they're releasing, not necessarily for end users, not only for end users, but for advertisers as well. It's making Hotmail a more attractive place to uh, to to send your emails to. Now, for end users, if they continue, if this proves to be successful, and people are actually engaging with these with these active, um, because I think they call the feature active view. So if users are actually engaging with these active view emails. Um, Users may become accustomed to being able to perform the same actions within their inbox that they would typically have to go to a web page to perform. So it's, it's going to be attractive for users. Now, whether or not you're going to have people leave Gmail or leave Yahoo because they can't engage with emails within their inbox is a, is a whole other story, and I'm, I'm not prepared to predict on that yet. But you know, I see value in it, and I, I don't see any, um, I don't see any, I don't see any disadvantages to this feature yet. There may there may not prove to be significant advantage in using it, but there are definitely no disadvantages. As, as long as they continue down the, the the road of carefully selecting the partners that they allow to use this functionality. Well, 
I've got a client or two I think that we should probably talk to about this sort of thing because it does seem like adding in JavaScript could, you know, very, very potentially increase, you know, not only email functionality but conversion rate on different things. So that yeah. is exciting. I mean, and, and like you said, I, I believe that Hotmail is the largest web email provider in the world. So yeah. there is a significant user base. And you know, so they're out there. We might as well, you know, use this if we can, and, and if it's if it's easy enough, you know, not cost prohibitive, essentially for the development. Mm-hmm. All right, so you know, the next story we have on here is another one that, that you've dropped in, which I actually find really interesting. And it says that apparently Best Buy has issued a stop sale for both the Droid Two Global and the Droid Pro, and. And the notes you have on here is, is probably because they were pricing them too low. So, who do you think this stop sale came from, and and what's the, what's the backstory here? Uh, I feel like the stop sale came from uh, from the carrier, uh, and I'm not sure who which, which carrier offers these two phones. Is Verizon. It, Verizon. So the the speculation is that the stop the stop sale was uh, initiated by the carrier due to um, Best Buy violating um, the terms of their distribution partnership. Uh, basically, what they're doing is underselling the carrier. So, you know, whatever whatever predictions or whatever estimates the carrier had made, you know, on these two devices, they're not achieving them. And they're not achieving them because people are choosing to buy their handsets from from Best Buy due to the fact that Best Buy is pricing them so low. Uh, they don't feel like people would not buy the handsets if if Best Buy didn't price them so low. They're just choosing Best Buy because they are priced so low. So to kind of you know to prevent to to prevent this from happening to prevent their sales are being totally uh, taken over by um, by Best Buy. They're they're telling Best Buy to stop. You know, not only stop pricing that low, stop selling. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting because I mean the Droid Pro, which I think is the same thing as the Droid Two Global. Um, it's it's a really awesome phone. It's the one that looks a lot like a BlackBerry, as in it has like the BlackBerry keyboard, but it has a nice large Android screen on it. I mean, that was like kind of the perfect form factor for a lot of people. So I can definitely see them getting mad about this phone above all others if it's cutting into sales because this would be kind of like, you know, this would be Verizon's enterprise-level phone that they should be selling in droves in their own stores. And if it's, it's, if it's happening at Best Buy because they're so cheap, I could see them getting very, very mad about this. But, yeah, but doesn't especially th- if they're violating, you know, some kind of pre-established terms. Right, and, and so do you think this is something that Best Buy has done for a while knowingly and just said, well, we're Best Buy, we're really huge, we are still providing you a ton of new users all the time, and that they finally just got called out on this on this Droid Pro because of the type of phone it was? Or do you think this is something that is, is new for this season and, and, you know, Best Buy either didn't know or they said – Kind of f you and and went ahead with it anyway. I think that I think that you know I, I think Best Buy's position is that you know they price their handsets aggressively because they do want to. I, I read an article where they're saying that that laptops and you know computers in general are seeing a decline um, in Best Buy sales and, and generating revenue for Best Buy. Whereas handsets, you know, mobile handsets are their revenue generator or one of their leading revenue generating products, and I think that Best Buy saw this as a way to continue that, uh, continue that trend, you know, continue to uh, to sell mobile handsets and price them aggressively, you know, so that they so that they can do that. Um, 
from Verizon's point of view, this is almost a business class handset. Well, it is a business class yeah. handset. Uh, and there's no reason, you know, to discount this handset at the rates that uh, that Best Buy was discounting it. You know, being as almost targeted towards the business community anyway, and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna pay whatever price they're charging for it to get it. So there were, you know, it's not really there. There was no value being generated in discounting this particular handset the way that they are. So whereas the terms may have been violated before, this probably brought you know that violation ahead because they really are cutting in the sales in a way that didn't that in a way that doesn't necessarily have to occur. You know, being that this handset would sell regardless. Yeah, so th- this more than anything is a bad sign for Best Buy going on in the future. You know, this holiday season they're probably still fine, but I imagine that Verizon is going to be much more careful about what they release to Best Buy and and the terms that go around those in the future, which means that Best Buy is not going to be able to run the same deals that they've always had. And, you know, when I went and bought my Droid originally when I got it, I got it from Best Buy because they had the best deal there. Yeah, and and I, I and you know every single day I guess during December they're giving away phones for free like Android phones and other great phones for free, and so they they are definitely building a reputation for being the place to go for your Verizon cell phones, and that might not be the case any longer, which is which is unfortunate for them and well more unfortunate for everybody that wanted those phones from Best Buy. Yeah, I think you're gonna see a lot more oversight, a lot more enforcement. Uh, from the carriers on on how Best Buy prices their handsets. You know they probably were overlooking it before. You know they didn't see that. You know they they probably didn't think that it was it was cutting that much in the revenue. But when you have this type of handset and the fact they could generate revenue with or without you know Best Buy's discounts, uh, you know it brings the situation ahead. And now they, they now they definitely see the need to uh you know to, to kind of oversee that that situation. Yeah. Yeah, they they'll be in those stores like crazy for sure. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you got a lot of stories in this week's show. Why don't you tell us about this PlayStation app that's coming out pretty soon too? Yeah, so PlayStation uh, app for iOS and Android. The reason I put it in here is because uh, you know we've heard rumors, and I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast because there are rumors, but we've heard rumors about a PlayStation phone. So when I saw the uh, announcement of the PlayStation app, it kind of piqued my interest. Now, the PlayStation app is not a full-fledged uh, gaming system on the uh, Android and iOS platform. What it is is more like a, uh, a window into your activity on a PlayStation network. Some of the features that the app has is the ability to, um, to check out your PlayStation network trophies and keep, keep up to date with your friends. Um, Obviously, they're going to have a feature to discover new games on PlayStation. Um, you can see new announcements uh, on PlayStation, and you can share your favorite products. So it allows for you to c- communicate with your PlayStation network within this application. Now, these features don't sound that significant. I, I, well, they I, sound a lot like Xbox Live or, or actually a lot like the Xbox integration into Windows Phone 7, but not even as good because there's not even mini games on there. Yeah, and I was I was trying to stay away from comparing it to Xbox because I don't want to confuse people to think that Xbox Live is just a you know a social platform because it's not you know it's a social platform and a game platform. Right. So Where, yeah, yeah. So you're right, but it is it's the social platform without the gaming. Right. It's right. just like a badge system essentially. That, that's basically all it is. Now you know that being said, I feel like this is probably V1 of this application. I don't think it will stay limited in the way that it currently is. You know, I think this is their, 
their introduction onto these platforms. They're probably trying to get a few users, you know, a few people to install the app. And I feel like I feel like they'll take it from there. You know, I, I feel like it's only a matter of time before they start to uh, start to go full Xbox Live with it. You know, and roll out games on the platform, along with potentially introducing their own phone. Right, and I think that I think that you're right in that. Um, I think this is definitely a response to Windows Phone Seven. You know, even though they weren't, they're they're definitely not as sophisticated, and they don't have the gaming section that that Windows Phone Seven Xbox Live integration has. I think that they, you know, w- once they were made of aware of this integration, you know, probably nine or twelve months ago, you know, and they really saw it coming to fruition, they were like. Okay, what are we going to do about this? Because mobile gaming is about to become huge, and so this this is definitely the first step of that integration that we're going to be seeing in the future. And from the sounds of it, it sounds like there is going to be a PlayStation phone running on Android. It's it's you know the rumors are about as strong as the Verizon iPhone rumors, and so uh, you know we're like. 90% sure at this point it's coming out and it's coming out soon. And so this would be kind of the gateway drug to to that sort of a thing, getting people into the idea of mobile gaming and thinking about PlayStation on the run. Um, so I don't think this is going to be a, you know, a blow-away hit for them. I don't think there's going to be tons of people interacting with the app all the time, but they probably will have a lot of installs at the very least, and that will get people you know, halfway there to actively using the platform once it's more robust. Yep. So otherwise, I mean, you know, I, I guess that's interesting, but, yeah, I, I get, you know, at the end of the day, I need to see the implementation. And, the, the, you know, since it's coming to Android, even though I don't even own a PlayStation, I'll still check it out or I'll see, I'll see what's going on with that and see if I can, if I can try to figure out where the future of this, of this PlayStation app is going to be. Yeah. You know, and to add to that, you know, not only is it like, you know, their 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 opening shot, you know, to getting on mobile platforms, I, I feel like it's a defensive move uh for the uh for the hardware as well. You know, they they don't want Xbox to be the only platform out there who has a who has a phone presence. Um, you know, their their handset, depending on how successful it is, Will will be I don't I don't I don't know I don't know if I should use the word limited you know to those to those people who purchase it but it is only going to be in the hands of those people who purchase it and I feel like they want their presence to be greater than that you know they want something greater than that to complement the X I mean the PlayStation hardware so you know this is their defensive move to make sure they have a phone presence in the same way that Xbox has a phone presence also they know that Xbox will. I, you know, I doubt the Xbox Live will uh, will ever be on Android, and I, I, I highly doubt it will ever be on uh, iOS. Uh, that's a strong statement, but it just doesn't seem like something that um that would would help the Xbox business. Yeah, you know, it, that just it wouldn't. I, I definitely don't think it would help the Windows Phone Seven business, at least not in the short term. Yeah. So I was I've been thinking about that lately, and maybe it's something that we can, you know, help kind of discuss. In in I don't know maybe the trends or predictions section I'm not I'm not sure where it would go but you know I mean Microsoft has come out with an Bing with a Bing app for both iPhone and Android and they've you know they've actually supported them pretty steadily like there's a new version of the Bing app that came out just this week which has you know a bunch of new features that actually people are pretty excited about 
And I wonder if it's if they're thinking that maybe they're going to take the um, you know the Kindle route and just say we're going to put our best products and our best apps on every single platform there is and just get usage you know get adoption because that's that's where the money is not necessarily owning you know the entire experience you know people that want the entire experience can get that but they don't need it um, do you see do you see the kind of the the Bing app support being indicative of anything or is that kind of a standalone um, standalone service I think that a lot of uh, Microsoft's business units have been given a lot more freedom um, in in a recent, maybe in this past year or two, than what they formerly had. Uh, I think Microsoft, as as recent as as last year, worked under the the thought process that when we release products, when we when we release features, uh, we release those features, uh, we release those products that only work on on our ecosystem within our ecosystem. Whereas recently, I think they they they're leaning towards a model that says release features, release products that will work across the board. I think Bing was a benefactor of that. Um, the Bing team says we don't want to be uh, we we don't want to be limited to at the time that it was released uh, Windows um, Mobile 6.5. We want to also be on iPhone. We want to also be on Android because it's going to help Bing. You know, the the the, the bigger our presence. Um, the more the more uses we're going to get, and so they they weren't they weren't necessarily tied to to the Microsoft ecosystem. Now, that being said, I feel like Xbox is a key differentiator for Windows Phone Seven. It is currently a key differentiator, and it will be for the for for the for for the foreseeable future. And because of that, I don't see them making that application cross-platform. I don't see them rolling that out to iOS. I don't see them rolling that out to Android, BlackBerry, or any other uh, would-be competitor to Windows Phone 7. It's going to be something they're going to keep in their pocket for the foreseeable future, at least until Windows Phone 7 gets to the point that it, you know, that it can support itself. It doesn't need these these features to be only on Windows Phone 7. Yeah, it, that's that's actually I, I would say pretty smart analysis there. And and the only you know the only question I would have about it is. You know, at the end of the day, does Xbox Live being on Windows Phone 7 help Windows Phone 7 more than Xbox Live being on other platforms would actually help Xbox? You know, like, where is that balance? And I wonder if those two teams are even really talking that closely yeah, I, I about feel that. Xbox, I feel like Xbox, and, they, and Xbox would probably agree when they say that they don't need, um, they don't need the help of iOS or the help of Android. You know, they, they have a... a a significant user base, all in them, you know, they, they have that user base on their own, and they will continue to grow that user base on their own. They, they don't need the help of Google or Apple to do that. Yeah. Connect's uh, going to help them with that, too, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so X, Xbox Live integration is one of those differentiators. I also feel like Office is a differentiator. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like we'll see a um, an Office application rolled out on Android or uh, or iOS. No, because these are, these are features that are core to the reason for Windows Phone 7 existing. And, and they need them. You know, they, they need these features. Yeah. Hey, now, so, so... The impact they might have for Windows Phone 7 in the long run, it still remains to be seen. Yeah. But nevertheless, they, they need to be there. Yeah. Um, so I was going to say, like, a total off-topic here as we get towards the end of the podcast, but I actually played with the Kinect the other day. Mm-hmm. I, was at, I was at Best Buy with my brother and tried one out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to say in, in the order of, you know, in, in the... 
you know, likes of Wii and Kinect and PlayStation, I think Kinect gets third place. Hmm. Um, now, granted, I didn't play the dance game that that everybody's been raving about. Um, I only played some of the the Kinect sports or whatever they're calling it. But um, I really found the responsiveness to be to be kind of slow, and and the lag that people you know that they have conceded is there and kind of has to be there was significant to me. You know, it's something that like Twitch gaming is kind of a big deal. Like to me, like the littlest movement needs to be represented in the game. And when I was playing games like like they had like a beach volleyball game, there were like little movements that I wanted to make that would come too late on the screen and and impact the gameplay. And so at this point, like my kind of hierarchy, I would say that PlayStation's got it down. I think that they are kind of the number one and that the Wii and Kinect are actually pretty close. Um, Wii is more responsive, but obviously Kinect is much cooler technology. But I think that just because of the responsiveness... I'd have to put Wii above Connect, which is really unfortunate because the Wii is kind of, you know, not a great platform any longer. I wish that they would kind of be phased out or at least be forced to bring out the next version. But I don't know. I, I'm not sure that Connect is it for me. Hmm, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, I can't really say anything. I've not played with one, so. Yep. Uh... Yes. It, it, you know, I mean, granted, I was playing in a Best Buy, and so I don't think it was probably the greatest environment for it either. But I, you know, I played a couple full rounds and and thought I got a good feel for it. Well, I also, you know, it was a cold day, so I also was wearing a jacket when I first started playing, and it really was really getting thrown off by the jacket, so I had to take the jacket off. And um, I don't know, there were just a lot of things that like I had to like, I, I had to make caveats for the game, or I had to like give up certain things to make the game work. Whereas I just kind of expected it to see me and respond as me in real time, but. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? Maybe maybe they'll be able to do some firmware upgrades. Maybe just in Connect V2, we'll get a we'll get a faster processor in there. I don't know what the I don't know what the limitations are of the hardware or the software. Yeah, you know that's an interesting take. Um, I have heard feedback of um, a slight delay, um, but I've not heard any. Uh, you know, I've not heard anyone place it at the bottom. Of, I know. Uh, I, well, and and it's weird because I'm not like a. I'm definitely not. I mean, I'm not any kind of gaming console fanboy, you know, by any means. Like, I've played the PlayStation a couple times. I own a Wii, but, I mean, I don't love it. I don't play it that much any longer. Um, I think it deserves to be replaced by these other two players. But um, I, I I think it's the kind of, you know, hardcore gamer that I used to be. Um, that was really into, like, those Twitch reactions of, of you know, really specific movements that I need in a system. Like, if it doesn't have that or it doesn't compensate for them really, really well, I, I feel I just get turned off by the platform. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. All right, well, you know, moving on from that brief aside, I think that's all of the news we've got. So um, I do see that you've got a trend for us this week. Yeah, so moving into trends, uh, sandboxing, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of freestyling this trend. I only put one word down: sandboxing. I, I feel like you know, as a conversation we can have about it, though I I don't really have a conversation prepared in my head. Um, to to kind of give some uh, some overview of what sandboxing is. Yeah, give give kind of a sandboxing one hundred and one because I actually had a couple discussions this last week with people saying. I've heard about sandboxing lately, which which is 
indica- indicative of a trend that's becoming more mainstream. Um, but I've heard about sandboxing. I just don't understand it. So give us some background there. Okay. I'm going to give the, the super dumbed-down version of it. Sandboxing is an implementation of either applications, extensions, programs within an operating system that encapsulates that application within, a, uh, within an isolated area. So basically what that means is when you install an application into, uh, into Chrome, that application doesn't have access to the, to the underlying architecture of Chrome. It doesn't have access to the underlying architecture of the OS. It only has access to the application itself. So basically what you're doing is if you install an application that, that has the ability to somehow spread a virus, that virus cannot spread beyond that sandboxed application. So the reason you've been hearing so much about it is sandboxing is the way that, uh, you know, that a lot of manufacturers, service providers, are, are implementing um, applications and extensions so that those extensions can't spread malware. So Chrome has made a big deal about the fact that they're sandboxing Flash. They made a big deal about the fact that they're sandboxing, um, uh, I think, PDFs or, 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 yeah, I think they were sandboxing PDFs. So what that basically means is if if Flash has a uh, has if if Flash has a vulnerability and somewhere to were to take advantage of that vulnerability, that malware can't spread beyond Flash in and of itself. It you know is is contained within within Flash or it's contained within that within that enclosure. Does, does that make sense? It does. Well, it does to me because I kind of understand sandboxing, but. I think that you know the way I would say. I mean, you, know, you got it completely right, and I think that was a, probably a simple version of it. But um, I think the way I would put it is like anything that happens in the sandbox only impacts things in the sandbox. And so, a tab in Chrome or Flash in Chrome or anything else like that is in its own sandbox. And every and everything that's in the sandbox can play with each other, but it can't play with anything outside of the sandbox. Is that kind of where the sandbox terminology came from? Right, right. I yeah. mean, you know, like, like I said, it doesn't have access to the, um, to the, uh, to the application um, that's hosting, you know, that, that's hosting that extension or, or, you know, or that application. It doesn't have access to the underlying OS. It only has access to itself. Um, now, this is implemented in Chrome. Um, this is also something that's implemented in uh, Windows Phone 7, you know, to make it secure. I'm not sure to what extent it's implemented in, uh, in iOS, though I'm, I'm under the impression that it is. I don't know that. I'm, I'm under the impression that it is. And I'm not sure to what extent it's implemented in, uh, in Android. Um, I can say that this sandboxing feature was, was the major holdup or was the reason that Windows Phone 7 was not rolled out with copy and paste. Because oh really? Pace is the OS level feature, or is 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 a feature that's below the sandbox. It's a feature that's that's available within the OS. But if the application itself is sandbox, then this you know copy and paste doesn't have access to the content within that within that application. That's so that, very that's interesting. Part, yeah, so that was part of the reason it wasn't rolled out to begin with. Um, so the trend of sandboxing, in order to make the web more secure, in order to make our operating systems more secure, there's been a uh, an effort recently. To make sure that you know that your 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 application has the ability to sandbox um, add-ons to that application, and you know you've heard a lot about it from uh, from Chrome. You've not heard a lot about it from Windows Phone Seven, though they probably should talk about it. Um, but it's definitely you know a term that comes up when when manufacturers are are speaking about the uh, the security features of their of their application. 
So, question for you. Uh, it sounds like cut and paste and early development is one of them, but are there downsides to sandboxing? Because to me it sounds like, at least, I mean, from everything I can tell, sandboxing is only a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the downside to it is not really, it's, I can't really think of a downside from a user point of view, but from a developer point of view, there, there are significant downsides to sandboxing. Um, for for a developer, it means that you have limited access to the uh, to the underlying operating system or to APIs that are available at the, at the operating system level, as opposed to APIs that have been exposed to to application developers. So, in the case of Windows Phone Seven, because you're working within a within a sandbox, um, you don't have access to native camera functionality. You don't have access to native. Um, um, uh, you don't have access to native GPS functionality because these are OS level features that are not exposed to APIs that developers can use to um, to 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 develop their applications on. Yeah, I mean that all makes sense. So, so you're saying that the trend here is that everybody is trending towards sandboxing as much as possible. We're trending towards sandboxing, and along with that trend, um, OS developers have to uh, continue to uh, develop their APIs to give developers access. To applications because of these sandboxes. So that was going to be my other my other question here was you know so the access that people need that needs to happen via APIs now instead of just having you know uh, open access to an underlying operating system. Exactly. Okay. So hopefully you know hopefully we, we haven't been too technical technical with this conversation. The, the goal is just to let people know that you know as as sandboxing becomes more uh, you know more prominent, uh, I do expect for us to you know work within a more secure. Um, environments. Yeah, so I mean, it's a good thing. So, so look for it, and it, it's kind of a new wave in security. You know, it's something that we we've been probably playing catch up for a long time with internet security, uh, in particular. You know, like you know, virus scans and malware scans. All that does it's 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 reactive, whereas sandboxing looks like it can be a little bit proactive, which is is kind of a new move. So that's that's good to see. Yep. Yep. All righty then. I think uh, unless you've got more, it's time to move into predictions. No, I'm ready to talk about it. All Your right, prediction. all right. I've got a prediction this week, and it's based off of conversations from last week and just some some musings over you know the time in between. And as as much as I want it to work, I believe very strongly that Chrome OS, you know, so Chrome OS laptops at any price point will flop. They will they will not get significant adoption, and there, there's a little bit of of. Hey, well, before you before you move forward, yeah. When will they flop? No, I mean it'll never take off, so it'll it'll never be a success. What? what how do you define not taking off? Um, how many how many people, how many sales would they have before you can consider them a failure? I mean, like, if if they ever got twice the market share of Linux, I would call that a success, and I don't think that'll happen. So if they got, like, between 2 and 3% of the total OS market share, like, I would consider that um, not completely flopping, anyway. Um, so anyway, I don't think that they're going to get that far, and the reason that I don't think so is because um, it's going to revolve around price. And, and we, I mean, they, first of all, they have to come out cheap. It's just a matter of how cheap they come out, and 
and this this conversation might take a little while to get all the way to where I need it to be. So so bear with me here, and let me know if I'm going completely out of my mind. Um, but you know, so so Chrome OS is a limited operating system. It's purposefully limiting, as in all you have is a browser. Um, every other operating system out there has all of the capabilities of Chrome OS and then some. Um, which also means that most of them are going to be uh, more expensive. So, you know, we expect Chrome OS laptops or netbooks, as they probably should be called, you know, to start at least at launch to be between $200 and $300, the same price as netbooks. I think at that price, they, they still fail because you can buy actual netbooks, which are, you know, comparable hardware with full operating systems, um, and and so you're not getting any savings. So at that point, I think that, you know, the idea is, and probably rightfully so, that Google might start either, basically will start subsidizing these laptops or netbooks to a certain point. So they might get them to $100 or $50, or, you know, some people have even been saying free. But I feel like um, the there, there's huge diminishing returns for Google once they get you know past the $75 range because as as people as you make these cheaper and cheaper people buy them on a whim very very easily so you'll you'll have a lot of people owning them but they will stop using them very quickly because they didn't have much investment in the hardware so just like today I still use my netbook because I invested 200 $30 in it. Um, I still find it a good piece of hardware, but if I had gotten it for 50 bucks, I would probably say, eh, you know, no loss if I just kind of throw this in the trash or keep it in the in the in the basement or like never touch it again. But because I actually had to spend significant money on it, um, I feel like it's actually a significant piece of hardware. And I think that you lose that once you start getting the price point too low. And if Google is subsidizing these laptop sales, assuming the price doesn't come down solely based on you know really low-end hardware, um, they are going to lose money because the only way for them to make up for that subsidy is for people to increase their usage of Chrome and therefore um, you know encounter more Google ads on the web and in search. And I, I think that's my logic, that there is no right price point for this that makes sense for users and Google at the same time, um, whether that be full price, so you know minimum price for hardware and sales of that hardware, or a subsidized version. I don't think either one really works at the end of the day. Okay, question for you. Yeah. Um, Google is developing the operating system, right? Yes, and they're working with partners to produce the hardware. Uh, I don't. I I don't know how closely they're working with uh, partners. I believe Samsung is going to produce hardware, and yes. I think Dell may have been announced. That's yeah, yeah. So other o, other OEMs are going to produce it. I don't know if Google's going to work with them like they do, like you know, they like they work with Samsung for something like the Nexus S to yeah, create that, it. Okay, I, I don't mean work with them. I mean okay. like okay. Google's not going to be producing the hardware. Correct. Okay, so how does Google lose? How do, how does Google lose based on the price of the hardware? Well, I'm saying if Google has to subsidize hardware sales by saying, "Hey, you know, Samsung, your your netbook right now is 
priced at $200, we'll pay $100 of that and bring it down to $100 because we're, we know that the increased usage of the Chrome browser is going to increase ad impressions and clicks okay. and sales. Um, okay. So once the subsidies start happening, okay. um, that's the problem. Otherwise, I think the price is going to be too high. Okay. Um, I agree that the Chrome OS will fail, but it's not... I don't think it's, it's going to be because of the price of the hardware. I think the majority of uh, the majority of, um, of I shouldn't say the majority of web users. I think there's a trend, and the trend is that the majority of the applications that you access are web-based, and there's really no there, there's not a lot of need for the average for a lot of web users to have uh, to have underlying operating systems when the majority of the content that they access or consume is on the web. Well, I, I I can completely agree with that in that, you know, and I think we talked about this either last week or the week before, in that, you know, 95% of what everybody, you know, what the majority of people do on their computers is on the web, but I'm still of the belief that even if it's, you know, 1% of the time they need to use things that are off the web, a Chrome OS netbook is not going to cut it because that 1% is essential to the computer experience. Now, that being said, I think people nowadays have, have, come, to, have come to expect that they're going to have, you know, I'm going to make a, a vehicle comparison here. You know, people, a lot of families have several vehicles. They have the SUV, so, you know, when they go to the, uh, when they go to the lake on the weekends, they have plenty of room. They can put the dog in the back. They can put the, the, uh, the flotation devices, you know, whatever they're taking to the lake with them, they can put it in the back. Family can jump in. They can go to the lake. That's what the SUV is for. They have the uh, they have the bins, so when they go to work, they look cool for their coworkers. <laughs> and then they have the uh, they have the sports car for the weekends when they're just riding around. They're not going to a lake. It's just it's just the husband and the wife. You know they they may, they, may, they might be going out to eat. So they have three different vehicles for, and they all serve three distinct purposes. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have come to expect their their computer hardware. To function in much the same way, they have the desktop for doing the heavy lifting at work, or the laptop to do the heavy lifting at work. They have the iPad for when they just want to consume content, and they might find room for a Chrome OS when uh, when they just want a cheap laptop. They can take with them on vacation. They can take with them when they when they on on potentially for for business uh, for business traveling. They don't need any OS. They, they don't need any any heavy software. They don't need any OS features. They just need to access something that has been saved somewhere on the web. So that being said, I feel like there's I feel like there's a use case for Chrome OS. And I feel like as people continue on the trend to find the hardware to fit the occasion, that they will find room for a Chrome OS type device. Hmm. Um. Well, in the same way that they found room, I mean, because before the iPad was released, everybody said it was going to be a failure. That's it was going to be a failure because it was so limited. But once people got their hands on it, they saw that hey, this uh, this the, the the iPad has has a good use case. I can read books on it. I can take it upstairs with me. I can you know it's 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 the it's my computer beside the bed. It's yeah. my computer that I take with me on business trips. It's my computer that I take with me to the coffee shop. So I'll say this. So. I guess I guess the only way that it can be a success in my mind, you know, the way they they could pull this off is that it has to be 
significantly cheaper than other netbooks without that cheapness coming as a subsidy from Google. I think that's it, I, I think that's really the only way for it to work. Um, and, and I don't think that Google will subsidize the product. I, well, you know, okay, but at the same time, I mean, so I don't understand why manufacturers are going to be able to get this price down for a a Google netbook when they you know they're already discounting you know Linux netbooks. Like I I bought a Ubuntu netbook because it was forty dollars cheaper, and you know, I I feel like the the Ubuntu netbooks are always going to be as cheap as the Google netbooks because they have the same hardware requirements and and have no licensing costs. Yeah. I feel like, you know, as computer computer components become cheaper, and they will, uh, manufacturers are going to be able to create uh, Google, uh, Chrome, um, Chrome OS-powered um, laptops at a cheaper price. I'm not sure if it's going to be significantly cheaper than a, than a laptop powered by a Windows or, um, or a Mac OS. But you know they're going to be cheaper, and people will look at these uh, at these computers as being I don't want to say throwaway devices, but they're going to look at them as devices that they can buy a few of. They can hand one out to Jane. They can hand one out to John. They can hand one out you know to the wife. And and these are you know the, these are your computers. And when you need the heavy computer, go in the living room where that where the laptop is, or go in the, go in the um, go in the office where the desktop is. But for all other purposes, these are your computers, and they're going to be easy to use. Um, you know. When, when you think about Linux, the fact that is the, the thing that holds Linux back is not necessarily that it's not cheap enough. The thing that holds Linux back is the fact that most people don't want to bother with learning to use Linux. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so if you if you give them hardware that they don't have to learn, I mean, it's already into it. All it is is a web browser. That's going to create a whole new motivation for people purchasing the, that that hardware. Now, well, I, I think about think about the sales experience of a Chrome. Uh, netbook though when somebody walks in and the salesman's like hey you know you're looking for a new laptop check out these ones and they start playing with the chrome netbook and they're like awesome you know this is so fast and it's it's really light and simple mm -hmm. um you know so where how come i can't minimize this window you know like where like where how do i open up anything else and then the salesman goes well you don't everything's in the browser i mean that's an instant turnoff. I don't know how you turn that positive. Well, because they're not going to show them the fact that they can't minimize the, um, the screen or minimize the browser. What they're going to do is take them to, uh, they're going to take them to Pandora. They're going to take them to Google Docs. They're going to take them to, uh, to Google Search. They're going to take them to, they're going to take them to New York Times, the, uh, the application. They're going to take them to all the sites, all the functionality they can get on this, on this laptop, this laptop. And, and it just so happens this laptop is significantly or at least much cheaper than the, than the next than the next laptop, and you're not really missing any functionality. You don't necessarily have the same level of functionality that you have on those OS powered laptops, but you have fun, you have access to all the things you access anyway. As a matter of fact, probably what you're going to see in the, on the sales floor is all these um, Chrome OS powered laptops. Um, sit uh, there, you, they're going to have Facebook loaded, and people are going to say, "Well, you know, that's what I use my computer for most of the time anyway." So as long as I got access to Facebook. I'm good. They're not going to show them what you can't do. They're going to show them what you can't. Well, right, but I think it's going to be very, very easy for the user to figure out what they can't do. I don't think I don't I don't think that's a huge issue to people. I don't think minimizing the screen is a huge issue, especially when you got tabs and you can just tab over to the next. Well, tab. but I think that when I'm investigating a computer, you know, especially with something that I'm foreign to, I'm going to click around a little bit. I mean, a little bit, and it's not going to be within a browser. 
you know, because yeah. I know how the browser works. One thing that I one thing that I, I consider myself pretty adept at doing is putting myself in the foot of other people, especially in the in the in the feet of people who are not avid technology enthusiasts such as yourself and myself. And if I were not the kind of person that I am, I would probably be satisfied with being able to access Facebook. Okay. I, I I think that you're right, and 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 I'm going to end on this because I think it's kind of a funny little quip here. Um, in that I think that a lot of people that would, um, have very little need other than Facebook are the same people that are, IE users, and that would be scared of another browser. Okay, <laughs> but that, that, that's just one other point. I mean, basically, basically, I, I, I have you know, there, there's a, a laundry list of reasons I think that this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I, I think that this is a good sign that we are moving towards browser only, you know, interactions, and I think that that you know the trend here is that we are moving towards web-based everything, cloud-based everything, mm-hmm. you know, as it should be because that's that's a better way to go about many, many things. But I think that a, a browser-only operating system is is kind of destined to fail. Yeah. I'll, I'll end on this. So those, those people who use IE, um, some of those people choose to use IE, and the rest of them use IE because they don't take the time to download another browser. Yep. And those same people who don't take the time to download another browser won't be interested in minimizing um, their windows. It's probably true. So, yeah. All right. All right. We've got, <laughs> we've got our two different sides on this. That's But that's how the predictions are supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with that. All right. So quick little, uh, I guess, notification for every all of our listeners before we wrap up here. Um, you know, since we're coming into the holidays, I think that this is probably going to be our last recording of 2010. Um, there's a possibility of interim recordings. Um, you know, we might get one or two out there, but we're not sure. So that means that if you want to be updated the moment that the next episode of The Business of Tech is out, make sure you subscribe to, uh, from our homepage you know, via iTunes, via Zoom, via any kind of, of podcast reader or, or listener or player you have, um, make sure you subscribe. That way you are notified the moment it's out. Otherwise, you're just going to have to keep on checking back every day to see when the next episode is. Yep. And um, that's actually all I have. Um, Cal, do you have any um, shout-outs for uh, uh, things that you're working on, websites you're featured on, anything such as that? No, um, I I actually put up a pretty I, – I, what I thought was kind of a fun post on the BKV blog at my.bkv.com today that scooped a, um, a, a new interface for the Facebook business profile or fan pages that they had up for maybe 45 minutes. And I, I screenshotted and, and played with and interacted with as much as I could, um, and then they took it down, and they announced on their Twitter that it was – you know, they were internally testing it, and it accidentally got down and actually crashed their site. Um, and so, if you want to see a scoop on some new functionality and some new layouts of the Facebook fan pages, um, head over to my.bkv.com to see that. I actually got really excited about the whole scoop aspect of this because it's definitely something they did not want anybody to see. So, 
that was fun. That, that's hot. Uh, I noticed that uh, there there are no tabs on the new pages. There's no tabs. The navigation has been moved to the left. And the other big thing, which is huge, is that administrators of Facebook fan pages can now hit a button that logs them in as that page. So you get all of the functionality of Facebook, but now you are the entity that you are an administrator of, which means you can go to other pages and write on people's walls. You can you have a news feed. You have um. You know, you basically act like, act like another person, but you are the entity. And so, the the ability to interact with other entities on Facebook increases significantly when you when you do that. And so, I'm really excited for that to to move out. And that's definitely a feature that they had not announced to anybody previously. Yeah, that is that. So, so what is the uh, do we do you know like how it represents that that business entity? Does it just does it just use your business name? No, I mean, whatever your fan page is, and uh-huh. so it's the same thing, you know, whenever you post on your own fan page when you're an administrator, it comes up as that fan page. Well, that functionality is now brought to the rest of Facebook. So um, it's a little bit limited at this point in that, um, you know, when we were testing it out, we could only comment or, or write on, on the walls of other fan pages that we had marked as favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they're doing that so that it's not as easy to spam all around. You know, there's a couple steps in between to right. do that. But, you know, it's going to expand. You know, pretty soon Starbucks is going to be able to write on your personal profile page, hey, thanks for coming in today. We loved seeing you, that sort of thing. It's going to be pretty interesting. As long as you like Starbucks. Yes. Okay. Hey, was that? Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. And, and it, the whole process, though, was really fun. I mean, I, I can definitely now see um, why the people, you know, at, at these gadget blogs get all all hyped up and um, <laughs> and stuff when they get these scoops because it is pretty exciting. All right, that's well, all I got. All right. Well, uh, as always, you know, I, I encourage all our listeners to uh, to check out JabrilGaney dot com. I try to uh, keep it updated. Um, I uh, again, a lot of my stories this week came from uh, posts that I've made on JarrellGanny.com. So if you kind of want to see what we're going to be talking about during the week, feel free to check that side out. Um, and that's all I have. You know, as always, um, we really appreciate you all tuning in. Uh, we know you could have been anywhere in the world, and you chose to be with, be here with us, and we really appreciate it. And in case we don't talk to you all again uh, before Christmas, um, I'd like to say, and I'm I'm sure Cal that you totally agree. Uh, Merry Christmas. And Happy New Year.